Hey everybody, welcome to episode 239 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas. But I gotta be honest, I'd rather be in Eugene watching the Olympic trials because it has been amazing so far. And with today's episode, I'm gonna give you some of the highlights and translate that into lessons from running that you can learn and pick up from watching closely the Olympic trials so far. We've seen one weekend of races. We have four middle distance and distance teams chosen already. The men's eight, the men's 10,000, the women's 15, and the women's 5K. And we have six more teams to go if you include the men's and women's steeple, which we'll all be picking up on Thursday again. We've got two rest days today, Tuesday, and tomorrow, Wednesday, and then the meet picks up again Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with four more days of amazing action. And I must say it has been awesome to watch so far. And one of the things that I'm particularly happy about is that the unfortunate situation surrounding Shelby Houlihan has not overshadowed the magic of the trials. And so I've got seven lessons for you today that you can learn from watching the Olympic trials closely based on what has happened so far. These are lessons and athletes that you can be inspired by by watching these events. And one of the things that I think is particularly powerful about watching elite racing is that if you really drill in, then even though the talent level is clearly far and away better than anything you or I could do, but if you really drill into it and the magic of running is that we all experience the same things. The training looks the same, just different paces and volume. The mentality, the things you deal with mentally are very similar. And so there's there are absolutely things you can take by watching the elites and translate into your own world. So I'm going to try to do that today with seven lessons that I would take from the Olympic trials. Before we get there, a couple of quick things. First of all, just a reminder, when those events pick up on Thursday, they will be on NBC, as well as you can watch them on the Olympic Channel for, for some of the prelim events, but all the finals are on NBC. So set your DVRs for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or you can also get a Peacock membership and watch all of the events streaming online for, I think, what is, I think, a reasonable price. So that's, that's uh, what you do to tune in. I would highly recommend that. Second of all, there was an announcement today from the Boston Marathon about what's coming for the 2022 Boston. I'm pleased to see them get this news out soon enough. Obviously, we have the 2021 Boston coming up in in October, and that will be off from the normal cycle, but then they're going to go right back to April and have the 22 event on Patriots Day next year, and they've announced today that they will be opening registration for that from November 8th through November 12th of this year. And qualified athletes will be able to submit their application at that time, which means that which means that qualifying times between September 1st, 2019 and Friday, November 12th, 2021 will be available to apply for the 2022 Boston. So essentially you have a two-year window for which the qualifying times count. Although, of course, about a year of that was lost due to canceled races in the pandemic. So it still ends up being about a year's worth of, of actual months where you could have raced that, that, uh, that'll be contributing to that qualifying window. And, and then you'll be able to register during those days, those five days from November 8th through November 12th for the 2022 Boston next April. They also announced the qualifying window for the 2023 race, which theoretically will be in April 2023 on Patriots Day. That qualifying window opens this September 1st. So from September 21st, sorry, September 1st, 2021 until registration opens for the 2023 race, which would typically be in September of 2022 then you'll have that window for your qualifying time, which essentially means that the 2023 qualifying window opens up this fall with all of the races happening. And so you 
could theoretically qualify for both the 2022 race and the 2023 race between September 1st of this year and November 12th of this year. So there's going to be about a two-month window where your times will actually apply for both races, which is good because that includes all of those major marathons that are happening this fall. Berlin, Chicago, Boston itself, New York, London, and Tokyo all happening within that two month window. So if you're able to get in, if you were able to get into one of the majors and you're racing a major or any other race in September or October through to early November, then that's going to give you two years worth of Boston qualifying. So that's the news from Boston. I'm glad they got this news out early so people could start to plan what their racing calendars look like and maybe set aside racing next April and they'll now be able to know you'll now be able to know when you when you're going to be able to register for that April 2022 Boston November 8th through 12th of this year. So that's good news at least as it relates to getting clear vision into what's going on with Boston. And the last thing I wanted to mention before I jump into my topic is today's episode partner. I've got I've had now a multi-month partnership with Green Chef. They're the number one meal kit company for eating well, and we'll be talking about them mid-episode, but I wanted to thank them for sponsoring this one. So let's jump into my discussion about the trials. We're going to talk about seven lessons from the elites in the trials. That Some of these will be training-related, and some of these will be more mental focus, but all things you can take away from the inspiration that has been provided by these trials. And I absolutely wish I was there in person. I, I've been to the last two Olympic trials. I was going to go to the 2020 trials last year, but unfortunately, obviously that didn't happen with the pandemic. And then I canceled those tickets and just didn't really have enough plan time to plan to get there this year with the late information coming really only several weeks ago about what would happen with spectators for the trials. So I am here in Austin watching it on TV, jealous of all those that are there. But let me tell you, I highly recommend getting to the Olympic trials. It is a, it provides a full dose of inspiration, especially if you're willing to commit to, to watching all the sessions. So let's talk about my lessons for the trials and we have from the trials and we have to start with the queen of track and field, Allison Felix, who qualified for her fifth Olympic Games in the 400 meters in what was just an absolutely amazing race from her part. She ran in lane eight and ended up getting second to earn the top three spot to go to the Olympics, but she had to come from behind to do it. She started strong in the first hundred, faded a little bit in the middle 200 and then came back strong again in the final 100 to earn that second place spot. But as as close as probably about 30 meters out from the finish line, she was in fifth place and made up three spots in those final 30 meters in what was just an amazing, amazing finish. But the thing that I take away from that, Obviously, it's inspiring to see her as a mom come back and make her fifth Olympic Games. And she, by the way, is the most decorated track and field athlete of all time from any country of, you know, any gender. And I don't think she often gets credit, enough credit for that. She has more medals, global championship medals than Usain Bolt, than Carl Lewis, than Michael Johnson, than all the guys that you might think of at the top. And again, I don't think it's enough credit for what she's been able to accomplish for now, what will be five Olympic games and she'll get another medal. It may not be an individual medal, but she'll get a relay medal for sure. And so she'll continue to add to her haul in this Olympics. But the thing that struck me and the, that was fascinating about her result is her clearly she had that veteran savvy because as I said, she was in fifth place with about 30 meters to go. And for those that know the 400, 400 and 800 are pretty similar in that it's less about who's running fast at the end and it's more about who is decelerating the least. You will see in a in an 800, typically 
those athletes run positive splits, meaning their second lap is slower than their first. And in a 400, you will see that that final 100 tends to be the actually the slowest of the hundreds in a 400. And it doesn't look that way, but it is actually about who's decelerating the least in that final 100 meters as that lactate builds up in the system. And you can see Allison Felix and all of the athletes in that final 100 in that place where the muscles are starting to revolt. But if you watch her closely, you can just see the absolute focus that she had on her face to try to maintain her form as well as she could over that final 30 meters in order to move from fifth to second and earn her spot in the team. That doesn't happen easily. That is something that is trained, that is veteran savvy, that is maturity, that is having the ability to use the mind to control the body, which is revolting against your every movement. And she obviously has the experience doing that. But what struck me was just simply that the mind that it took to maintain that focus. Her, her eyes are straight ahead. Her focus is solely on her body, her movement, her form, and trying to keep it as clean as possible in spite of all the screaming from the muscles inside in order to keep it together so that she decelerated less than her competitors who were just ahead of her at that point of 30 meters to go. And you can just watch it play out. You can watch her focus play out and keep her form together as best as she could in order to finish strong and earn that second place spot and make her fifth Olympic games. And so to me, there's a lesson in that, especially for anyone who chooses to race and put yourself into a tough spot in a race, because oftentimes, especially for us half marathoners and marathoners, there, there comes a point in the race where the body starts to break down, the form can get wonky simply because you're tired, because you're on the edge, because you're pushing it really hard. And we do everything we can in training to prevent that from happening. So part of this is the physical work to make sure that you can maintain at the end of a race. But the other part is just that ability to focus and think through continuing to have smooth, efficient form all the way through the finish line. And so for me, with watching Allison Felix, who was just a master class exhibit in that. And yes, it was over 400 meters, but you can take that to a half marathon. When you're late in a half marathon or late in a 10K, even late in a 5K, and your form is all over the place, if you focus, if you think through making sure your form stays in check in spite of everything screaming against it, then you can hang on better than the rest. You can salvage time where otherwise you might have lost it. And part of that goes back to the relaxation exercises that I talked about or that re relaxation and meditation process that I talked about in my episode on form a few episodes ago. But that's that's what was happening here with Allison Felix. She was undoubtedly going through some sort of mental checklist, likely innate, likely something that's programmed in her, but her focus was straight ahead and solely on herself and making sure that form at the end was clean and smooth as it could be in spite of her muscles revolting against her. And as a result, she salvaged second, well, not just salvaged, but she crushed it into second place, passing three runners at the end while others decelerated more because they didn't maintain that same focus. You can take that to your half marathon, your 10K, your 5K, your marathon. When things start to break down, go to your checklist, your mental checklist of staying smooth and relaxed, head to toe, keeping it together as best you can for as long as you can so that you can salvage time, salvage seconds. So to me, that was obviously inspiring to see Allison, a mom, come back, get her fifth Olympic Games. 
but watching the way she executed that race showed that veteran savvy and showed a lesson for all of us on how to keep it together all the way through that finish line. Your goals might someday depend on it. So thank you, Allison Felix, for that lesson and congrats on your fifth Olympic Games. An absolute living and running legend. Okay, that's number one. Number two, going to another training lesson. Miles matter. Miles matter. I've talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast. I have a whole episode dedicated to it early on for those that have been listening for a long time. Everyone thinks in these shorter races like the 1500 or the 5K that it's about speed. And certainly there's an element of speed that is there. But that staying power, that ability to have speed at the end, and even to keep things together when everything is falling apart around you, that comes from the work, the miles, the volume, the easy volume that helps build the aerobic capacity that allows you to have and use that speed when it's time in those final laps. And to me, there's a couple of examples of this from this trial so far. One is Woody Kincaid, men's 10K champion from the Bowerman Track Club. I remember after I had Matthew Centrowitz, his teammate, on, one of the questions I asked him actually offline of that conversation was, who gives you the most trouble in practice? And at the time, I started rattling off Lopez Lemong, who's a former Olympian in the 1500, who was also in the 10,000 but dropped with injury for this trials. I talked about Ryan Hill, who was known for his devastating finishing kick in the 5K. And he said, no, no, no. And this was a couple of years ago. He said, no, no, no. Woody Kincaid, that's the guy that I have to watch out for. He's the one that outkicks me. And part of that is because of his, vol- his volume, his aerobic base. Certainly has the speed, but he has the speed to use it at the end. And actually in this race in the post-race interview, I think he ran a 53-second final lap to win that 10,000. They asked him, how'd you do that? that? That must have been the hard part. He said, no, the 53 wasn't the hard part. It was getting to that point. That was the hard part. And that is a testament to the work, to the volume that he has put in through the years. He was in a high high mileage program at Portland University, and he's in a high mileage program now at the Bowerman Track Club, and that work, that volume that he's put in over the years allowed him to use that speed to run that 53-second lap when it mattered. And now he's going to his first Olympic Games. So, volume. Corey McGee, on the other end of the spectrum, in the 1500, she ended up getting second behind Ellie Purrier, is going to also her first Olympic Games. She ran a, I believe it was a three-second PR to run four flat in the final there to earn her spot. She moved from a quality-based program to a more volume-based program with Joe Bossard and the Emma Coburn group, and she's been building that volume over the last several years, working with Joe and Emma and company to allow her to have this to to use her speed when it matters and if you watched that race that 1500 that went out fast from the beginning it actually wasn't necessarily about having a big kick because the race was run honestly from the beginning but it was actually just about staying power and she followed Ellie Purrier put herself right in second place and just got right on the heels of Ellie Purry the entire race and was able to hold that spot until the final hundred when Ellie kicked it home. But that was an example to me of the transformation in Corey McGee of going from this runner who has had success for many years in the 1500 because of her speed. But in this case, it wasn't necessarily about her speed. It was actually her volume and her holding power that allowed her to maintain that speed for the entire race as Ellie took it straight from the gun. And that volume, that aerobic capacity, that aerobic strength is actually what propelled her to her second uh, 
place finish and her first Olympic team. So Corey McGee, another example of volume coming through to matter in the end. And those two athletes, Woody and Corey, are Olympians because of their volume, not necessarily because of their speed, their pure speed. Because without the volume, Corey doesn't do it. Without the volume, Woody Kincaid can't sustain what he did over 10,000 meters and make that team. He might have had success in the 15 or the 5,000, but he wouldn't have had that same success in the 10K without that volume. So miles matter. And if you're listening to this, it's been a while since I've preached this maybe, but it's not necessarily about a particular number, getting to a number that matters externally to you. It's more about where are you? What is your current starting point and how can you start to add volume to your current starting point? Doesn't have to be a lot. It could be bumping things by five miles per week per season, not more than that. And then having a really conservative, sustained improvement over the course of many years in your volume. Of course, making sure that there's the right balance between easy volume most of the time and then periodically running hard and fast. But increasing that volume builds aerobic capacity, which allows you to use your speed. It gives you that holding power at the end. And for those of us that are doing long distance races, 10K and above, it's absolutely critical. But it matters all the way down to the mile as well as Corey McGee is now an example of. So that's lesson number two, volume matters. And I think you actually, if you look at those athletes that have made the team Across the board, a lot of them come from a volume-based background. Lesson number three. Lesson number three. Have a plan and execute it in your race. Have a plan and execute it in your race. Now, this looks a little different in a track race. In a track race where you're competing head-to-head, the the planning for that is unique. Clearly. But I'm a big believer in any race you do, even if it's a race where you're not so focused on a specific time, that you have a plan. That you have a plan and that you execute your plan. Because that can become your anchor for all the nerves, all the anxiety, all the doubts that might creep in. If those things pop up, then you just go anchor back on executing your plan one step at a time. And these races, again, are examples of that. Those that have thrived have clearly had and executed a plan. I'll give you two examples here. Ellie Purrier. She is the women's 1500 meter champion going to her first Olympics. Grew up on a dairy farm in Vermont. An absolutely inspiring story. She had a plan. Her coach told Kara Goucher, as she mentioned on the broadcast beforehand, that Ellie would likely take this race from the beginning. Knowing that she was the most talented athlete in the field, knowing that she was the favorite, it didn't make sense for her to start slowly, for her to stay in the pack, for her to risk potentially getting caught up in some jostling, maybe getting tripped, something like that. And so her plan was to go from the front. And you even saw it in those opening steps of the 15 where there was a bunch of jostling as they got initial positioning. And Ellie Perrier actually got bumped off the track. She took a couple of steps on the infield and then regained her composure, got back into place, and then took off and essentially set the pace from the beginning. Running a 358 sub four in a championship race is just really, really fast. And she made that race from the front because she knew she was the class of the field. It was her race to win or lose. And she needed to stay out of trouble. So she set an honest, hard pace in the beginning, executed it perfectly, and led from the front all the way to the line. And now she's an Olympian because of that plan. She had a plan. She executed her plan. She anchored on that plan. And now she's an Olympian. Two others, Lise Cranny and Krista Schweizer, both from the Bowerman Track Club. 
they had a plan. They executed their plan, ended up 1-2 in the 5K and are now both first-time Olympians. They talked about it post-race, but their plan was essentially to hang out in the pack, conserve energy until the final mile of the 5K, and then gradually increase the pace from that last mile all the way in. And if you watch their splits, it went from 73 second laps to 70 second laps and then 67. And then I think they closed a little faster than that. So they, they execute their plan. They went to their front in that final lap and they alternated actually pace pacing from the front. And Kara even mentioned it in her, in her broadcast where clearly there were some team tactics. They alternated who did the work and gradually over those final four laps, they cranked down the pace, obliterated the field, and by the end, there were only three of them left going into that final 200, and the team was decided because they executed their plan working together, and now Elise Cranny, Carissa Schweizer are both Olympians. None of that is random. Obviously, there's a whole lot of training, a whole lot of work that goes into it, but then they carried it all the way to race day all the way to the final, they executed their plan to perfection. And the same is true or must be true for you. If you're going out for a race, have a plan. I don't even care personally if you're trying to get a PR or set a a specific goal. I like going into races with with a plan. You can use that race potentially as a training opportunity. So have a plan about how to progress through the race to use it as an opportunity to learn or treat it like a workout. And then certainly if you're going to race and with a specific time goal in mind, you want to have a plan. How are you going to execute that race so that you can deliver on that goal? And I've talked about on different episodes, different plans for different distances, but that even carries to potentially information that you might add about the course and the terrain. And this is where I've got to give a shout out to an athlete that trains with us in our podcast training group, the Renegades, Matt Stenson. He's an Aussie, lives down under, but trains virtually with the group. And he just executed the perfect plan at his target marathon in Brisbane recently, just several weeks ago. And he had a course in that Brisbane marathon that was brutal all kinds of crazy terrain primarily because of the bridges that you go over in that race and in particular just past mile five there was a really massive hill with a 15 plus percent grade and we had to work that hill into the plan so that he didn't dig a deep hole for himself climbing that hill because he still had 21 miles to go afterwards and so we created a plan broke that course down into six different sections developed an approach for how to manage the early hills so that he could finish strong late and he executed that plan to perfection and ended up smashing his goal and finishing second masters in that race so you got to have a plan and then go execute that plan leave nothing to chance there are things that you can't control in this case if you look at the weather in this women's 5k and the women's 15 it was 90 plus degrees on the track on that day you can't control the weather but you can control your plan at least cranny did chris schweizer did and now they're olympians because they executed that plan so that's lesson number three have a plan execute your plan before we get to lesson number four i'm going to talk briefly about my partner for the episode Green Chef, as I said, they're the number one meal kit company for eating well. I can tell you that it works for me in our household because my wife works. I have a job as a small business owner that can be a little bit crazy at times. We've got three kids, and honestly, we don't love we don't love to cook, and so we're we're all always scrambling in our household to feed our family of five. And Green Chef has now made it easier. Personally, I love the paint by numbers, easy to follow recipes that they give you that literally have pictures on them. So even someone as sometimes incompetent as me in the kitchen can follow them. They give you lots of options for different meal kit types. So you can 
meet your dietary needs if you're keto, if you're paleo, if you're primarily plant-based, or if you just want to eat in a more balanced way. They've got options for you as well. And then they give you all the ingredients that you need in what is mostly prepped when you get it at your doorstep so that all you have to do is follow the paint-by-numbers recipe. All the ingredients are hand-picked quality ingredients, organic veggies, high-quality proteins that come right to your door so that, again, you just have to assemble it, follow the directions, and put it into a meal that works for you and your family. And by the way, it tastes really good. So if you want to check out Green Chef, I've got a code for you. You can go to greenchef.com slash rogue100 and use code rogue100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. So how about that as a deal? Again, you can go to greenchef.com slash rogue100. Use code rogue100 for $100 off plus free shipping. And I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Good meals easy to follow recipes and it has made life easier in the McClung household. I can guarantee that. So with that, let's jump back into my conversation. Let's talk about lesson number four from the Olympic trials. For that, we get a lesson about peaking, a lesson about peaking. And for this, we're going to use Emma Coburn as our inspiration or example. And she hasn't yet made her Olympic team. So I want to make sure I'm knocking on some sort of wood that I'm not jinxing her here but if there were a favorite in this trials she is certainly probably the biggest favorite and it would take an absolute disaster for her to not make her Olympic team so again I'm knocking on wood as I say that so that I don't jinx her but she is a perfect example of planning her peaking in the right way as I've talked about before on this podcast we can only peak two or three times a year where you're building to a peak and then your body will naturally exhale exhale and come off of that peak. And it's difficult at times once you get on the other side to then maintain form and maintain fitness. And for athletes that are trying to make an Olympic team, it can be really difficult to plan that peaking period because in an ideal situation, you're peaking for the Olympic games in July. But for many athletes in this trials, they have to peak or try to peak close to the trials because they may be on the edge of being able to make the team in the first place, or they may need to get a qualifying time either close to the trials or even at the trials, in which case they need to be in peak form. And oftentimes that means they're peaking right now or even before the Olympic trials and then trying to hold on desperately to that fitness by the time they get to the Olympic Games, it can be challenging. Emma doesn't have that same challenge because of her pedigree in her event, the steeplechase, and because of her dominance in that event. She can plan her peak for the Olympic Games where she will be going for another medal. She earned a bronze in Rio and obviously will be trying to get another medal this year. So she has planned her season so that she can peak at the end of July, early August when her event happens in Tokyo. And as a result, this prelim in the Olympic trials that she's run so far was only her second steeplechase of the year. She ran one steeplechase prior to that, a rust buster of sorts in the Diamond Leagues in Europe, and then came over to the trials and her second steeple of the year was actually round one, the prelim rounds of the steeple, which she easily dominated and how has qualified into the final, which will happen on Thursday. But it's clear and obvious that she is measuring her training so that she can peak at the end of July. But many athletes are having to peak now or even before the trials in order to just get the standard or make the team. And you're seeing some athletes fall away in the final because they're likely past their peak. They probably peaked too soon. They peaked too early. They hit that big PR earlier in the season just to make an Olympic trial standard or just to put themselves in position to be qualified for the trials. And now they're just trying to hold on and it's clear that they're past that peak potentially which means that they're not putting their best foot forward in these trials and therefore potentially not making a team as a result. 
But Emma has timed it perfectly. She has the luxury to do that because of her talent, her pedigree, her dominance in her event. And that is just an example of making sure that as you build your training, you're peaking for one window and that window corresponds with your A race, your big goal, where you want to make sure you're putting your best foot forward versus scrambling, peaking too soon and then scrambling to try to hold desperately hold on to fitness after it has already sort of passed you by. So Emma Coburn, perfect example. There are other athletes that are able to do that. And I get it. I'm, I'm, to be clear, I'm not throwing any stones at any athletes because I understand that for many, making the Olympic team and, and is the big thing. And peaking for the trials might have been their goal because they just want to make it to Tokyo. But that just reinforces the point. You can peak for one or the other but not both. It's not possible to maintain a peak for a full month because once you come off that peak, then you might be able to hold on to it depending on the distance you're racing for a couple of weeks, but then the body naturally exhales. You naturally lose some fitness because your body just can't hold on to that edge as long as you would think or like, and then you have to rebuild. Then you have to rebuild again. And so you have many athletes that are doing that. And in many cases, a lot of the collegiate athletes fall into this bucket because they peaked for the NCAA championships perhaps, or maybe, or maybe in some cases earlier than that for a regional championship. And now they're trying to hold on to their fitness for the Olympic trials and then ultimately the Olympic games. And that's just hard to do because our physiology doesn't support it. So again, going back to applying in your world, make sure you know what races you want to target what you're peaking for and then target your training for that peak so that you get the most out of yourself at the right time. Just like Emma, when she goes to compete in Tokyo again, knocking on wood so that I didn't jinx her with this podcast. So that's number four. Number five is a little lesson about silencing our doubts little lesson about silencing our our doubts, and it comes from Heather McLean. She ended up finishing third in the women's 1500, qualified to the final on protest because she got bumped in the semifinal. So she really wasn't even supposed to be in the final, but made the final and made the most of it, finishing in third behind her teammate Ellie Purrier, who was in first. And she talked about in her post-race, interviews, one of her post-race interviews, this idea that she didn't think or she always thinks that she doesn't belong at this level. And she had to let go of those thoughts for this final and just say, look, I'm going to do everything I can for these four minutes and change. And that's all I can, can do. I have to leave the doubts aside. And so she talked about, she didn't call it this, but she talked about this, uh, this sort of imposter syndrome that she felt as an athlete competing at this level who maybe hasn't always thought that she deserved to compete at this level and, and her message to herself. And I'm sure something that was reinforced by her coach, Mark Coogan was you have to let that go for the four minutes and change. You're going to be in this race. You have to believe that you belong, that you deserve to be here and that you deserve to be an Olympian. And she was able to do that, ran a smart race, was a little more conservative, but was able to move up in the final lap and get that third spot in what was just an absolutely amazing performance. And I I feel like, you know, we always think that the elite athletes don't have those feelings of doubt and anxiety or questions about their performance. But I'm telling you, as someone who has interviewed elite athletes, who has worked at some level with elite athletes when we had a, a an elite team here at Rogue and who has had conversation with elites, they have the same doubts, the same anxieties, the same fears that you have on that start line. They're, they're no different. And they have to develop their skills, hone their skills to work through those things just like you and I when we have those doubts and anxieties on a start line. And so I want to Take a lesson from Heather McLean that says, when you have those doubts, acknowledge them as she did and still does 
She recognizes that it's there. You have to call it by name and accept and acknowledge that you're having those doubts and anxieties or fears. And then you have to consciously set those aside. So you can't ignore it. You can't run from it. You have to call it by name, look it in the eye, so to speak, and then set that, set them aside for a period of time to go do your race, which for me oftentimes just simply looks like executing the next thing in your plan. All you can do is, is have blinders on, look really close to at your feet, look at that next step, take that next step and block out those doubts that are coming and just focus on the task at hand, which is exactly what Heather McLean did for those four minutes and two seconds where not only did she need to get top three, but she also needed to run the Olympic trial standard in the final, which is hard to do. She did both. She let go of that imposter syndrome. She silenced those doubts for that window of time and she executed in this race and is now a first time Olympian. So that's a lesson from Heather McLean. You're going to have the doubts, recognize them, silence them, focus on execution and you will be okay. Number six, number six, win or lose with class, win or lose with class. And this one is a bit less tangible but I got to give a shout out to Jenny Simpson. She is the most decorated American miler ever and has, has been to every Olympic games since 2008, 2008, 2012, 2016, and did not do well in the 1500 meter final is not going to her fourth Olympic games. And I know that's devastating for her, but you wouldn't, know it necessarily based on how she acted. And I'm not saying you should bury anything. I'm sure Jenny is heartbroken over this result and not making it. Things just didn't come together for her with the pandemic. As she described in her post-race press conference, she said, look, I would have been ready to make the team last year. I was not ready this year. She got injured during the pandemic, was trying to come back to get to her typical form, but just didn't have it, didn't wasn't able to put those pieces together for whatever reason. And so because the trials happened a year later, she's not a four-time Olympian. And at the finish line, knowing that, she immediately, first thing she did was she went and congratulated the three athletes that will be going. Heather, Corey, Ellie. She went, she put her arms around them, she huddled up with them. And I don't know what she said, but she clearly gave them some words of encouragement. And then in her press conference, she just simply talked about that and gave credit where credit was due and said, talked about how the U.S. was sending an amazing team and she just wasn't part of it. She obviously alluded to her disappointment over that, as you would imagine. But the class, the composure the grace that she showed in defeat was absolutely inspirational to me. And you would expect that from somebody like Jenny, because by all accounts, she's one of the nicest humans you'll meet in track and field. You would expect that, but it doesn't mean she has to do that. I mean, she, she could have thrown, <laughs> thrown a tantrum. She could have been frustrated. She could have made excuses but she didn't. She congratulated those who won. She, yes, talked about her disappointment, but also recognized that this was in some ways a changing of the guard. And that class to me is inspiring. And it, and to me, it, the lesson to take personally, you know, in in an environment where you may not be winning or losing, so to speak, you may not, you probably aren't running we aren't running with an Olympic Games on the, on the line. But it's, to me, thinking about those races that don't go the way we would like and thinking about how to take lessons from Jenny's approach and apply that personally. And it means 
losing, quote unquote losing, missing your goal with class, certainly feeling all the feels, but also congratulating those others around you who may have gotten their goal on the day and recognizing also that the moment is bigger than you so that you can then still contribute your energy in some way to that moment without stealing from it because of your own hurt and pain. And yes, feel all the feels. I always say that you have to feel all the feels. You have to let those emotions come as they do, but also keep the bigger picture in mind. It's not just about you. It's also about those others around you and make sure you're taking the opportunity to invest in those other victories that might be around you because that is your way. That is your way of salvaging victory from defeat and giving back to those who might have had a better day. And Jenny did that. She did not distract. She could have distracted. She did not distract. She added to the moment. And I know that those three ladies all looked up, look up to Jenny. They all run for New Balance together, so they know each other personally. And I know they feel better about their result because of the way Jenny handled it and will likely be propelled forward in their own journeys because of how Jenny handled it. And so that to me is a lesson for running. It's a lesson for life. It's a lesson for any time you might have a win or loss is do it with class like Jenny Simpson. So hats off to Jenny Simpson, not only for an amazing career, but also for how she handled that situation. And by the way, I don't think she's done yet. Jenny will be back. The last lesson, number seven, don't give up. The journey is as powerful as the destination. Don't give up. The journey is as powerful as the destination. And for this, we take our lessons from Abby Cooper. Abby Cooper was a 2016 Olympian in Rio for the 5K. In one of the prelim rounds for that Olympics, she was tripped, she fell, and in the process, she tore up her knee and ended up having to have reconstructive surgery on her knee. In the moment, in what is an absolutely beautiful moment from Rio, and you might remember it at the time, her name was Abby D'Agostino. She and another athlete ended up helping each other to the finish after that fall and sharing an embrace at the finish line, even though, the, even though Abby herself was doing it on a knee that was completely blown out. It's been now five years for Abby Cooper on the comeback trail. She hasn't been the same as she has rehabbed from that injury but it's just now starting to come together and we got to see it on display in these trials. And even though she's not an Olympian now, she finished an agonizing fourth in the 5K, her journey is just one that gives me goosebumps. And it also goes to show you that there is so much inspiration to be found throughout the field, not just at the front and certainly not just from those who make an Olympic team. In the prelim for the 5K, Abby did not have the Olympic standard. And because she saw that the final was going to be really hot and the weather was going to be better for the prelim, she ended up soloing a 15.07, winning by, I believe, about 11 seconds in the prelim so that she could get her Olympic standard on the cooler day in what was an absolutely inspiring preliminary round and just got the stadium going. And then in the final, she held it until the very last 250 or so, maybe 200 meters, where she was right on the back heels of Rachel Schneider, who was in third, and then Elise Cranny and Krista Schweizer, who were leading in first and second. She was right on their heels, but ultimately in the final 250 to 200 meters, just couldn't finish strongly enough to earn that third spot, but gave it a really damn good try and almost made it her journey doesn't end in a fairy tale. Going back to the Olympics would have been perhaps the fairy tale ending after that injury that she had. But what is inspiring to me is not that she made it to an Olympic Games, but that she stuck with it. That five years later, she had a shot, even though the last five years have been absolutely agonizing return 
to form overcoming reconstructive knee surgery. And we, none of us will know the challenges and the pain that she went through during that time. It must have been excruciating. And I'm sure there were many, many times where she almost quit, where she said, this is too much. I'm not going to be able to do this. And she could have easily walked away from the sport at any point. Many of us would have, but she didn't. She kept working. She kept taking small steps. She rehabbed her knee. She got back to running. She started with what for her would have been pedestrian results in her early 5Ks when she was in form for the Olympics. She started where she was and worked through many, many, quote, uh, bad or less ideal results and then eventually put herself in position to make an Olympic team and came about 200 to 250 meters short after all of that work. And when you think about that journey, you might think or the devil on her shoulder might be, was it worth it? I didn't make my Olympic team. That might be the devil on her shoulder, but I will say for her, if I could be the angel on her shoulder and I will say to all of you, the journey was worth it because whatever she learned along the way, was worth it. She can take away forever. And she's not done, by the way. We'll see what happens. Maybe she can make a team for the world championships next year. But it's awesome to see her back after such a long journey. But there are many of us that I think can take inspiration from that because we have moments where we get injured. We have moments where we fail. We have moments where training is hard for whatever reason and we feel like we're spinning in circles and not making progress. But in those moments, you can think about somebody like Abby Cooper and think, man, if she can do what she did to come back after five years, after blowing her knee in the 2016 Olympics, in front of the world, by the way, if she can do that and then put herself in position to almost make another team five years later, man, then I can face whatever I'm facing And regardless of whether it works out the way you want to, I promise you the journey is worth it because the lessons and the magic that you get to experience along the way, whether you win or lose at the end, whether you get the goal or don't, makes it all worth it because in running, the journey is as powerful as the destination itself. And Abby Cooper is an example of that. So there you go. Seven lessons from the Olympic trials so far, and we're just through one weekend. We've got one more weekend to go. I would highly encourage you to tune in to NBC to watch and be inspired. I'll have some lessons from the second weekend on my next episode. So with that, we'll wrap this one. Again, thank you to my partner, Green Chef. If you'd like to take advantage of that offer code, again, it's Rogue100 for $100 off, including free shipping. Otherwise, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.